You're listening to the Healthcare Innovators Podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm Travis Good, your host and the guy with loads of questions. In this podcast, we dig for answers to some of your toughest questions in healthcare today. I'm delighted to bring you today's guest, Dan Monroe. I've known Dan's work in writing for Forbes for many years. He brings insight around U.S. healthcare policy like none other. So, Dan, I'm excited to have you share your thoughts on the U.S. healthcare system, but especially where technology is concerned. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I want to start with the title of your book, Casino Healthcare. Uh, certainly, you talked at length about how circular our healthcare debate has been. Did you come up with the title of the book while in Las Vegas, <laughs> maybe at Hims, or was there something very specific you saw? Yeah, I do wind up in Vegas a fair amount, in part because there's a lot of conferences that are hosted there, and it's not that far a drive from from Phoenix. So I do wind up there a fair amount. But at least some of uh, the title is directly from personal experience, because when we do engage uh, the healthcare system, it winds up oftentimes feeling like a casino. We don't really know what it's going to cost. We don't know what the diagnosis will be. We don't know what the outcome will be. And even beyond these big risks, there's clinical evidence that many of the most expensive conditions to treat, ones like cancer, are the result of totally random cell mutation. And that happens about 66% of the time. And there's also a strong correlation to geography in healthcare. In fact, uh, I've, I've used this quote before, but your zip code is probably more important to your health than your genetic code. And then as hospitals started to elevate the, quote, consumer experience with lattes and valet parking, I couldn't help but draw the comparison to a casino. But the subheading was equally important here because the subheading is the health of a nation, America's biggest gamble. And those are the very real stakes that we're playing with as we debate the road ahead. The Las Vegas is a place that can host conferences relatively easily. So it seems to be why why I end up there two or three times a year <laughs> these days. Right. In fact, I also go, the other major event is, is obviously hymns is always um, a natural, but the other one I try to get to every year now is actually Black Hat. And that's the the cybersecurity conference of the year, and it's always in Las Vegas. Oh, that's interesting that you attend that. So we we send a couple of our um, security and, and development team to to Black Hat every year, uh, and I I used to go uh, when I when I worked in um, uh, I guess I still work in security, but <laughs> when I worked for a couple of consulting firms doing pen testing and things like that. But I haven't been in you know probably ten years or so. It's it's but it's always been kind of a fascinating conference. I'm and I imagine even more fascinating today than it was you know fifteen years ago the last time I was there. It's pretty yeah, and it's grown dramatically to the point where. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they have to move it out of uh, the Mandalay Bay, but it's mm-hmm. it's a really big, big event now, and and it as it should be, it attracts a, a lot of attention, including movies. In fact, the basis of the last uh, Jason Bourne movie <laughs> was based on the idea of not only cybersecurity but the Black Hat Conference, actually DefCon, which is mm-hmm. uh, co- co-hosted with Black Hat, and the movie actually mirrors. Uh, some of that activity pretty well. So I'm curious, we're going down a path here that I I wasn't anticipating, but (laughs) while we're on the topic, uh, I am curious uh, why you're at DEF CON or or at Black Hat, uh, either this year or in previous years, 
have you, are, are there things you're seeing or insights you're gaining around healthcare security and healthcare? Um, uh, yeah, cybersecurity. It's obviously it's a hot topic in the media, but I'm curious if you're seeing that uh, sort of change in representation at those you know kind of uh, mainstream or, or largest conferences for for cybersecurity. Yes, and it's a focus that I've written about uh, on Forbes. Uh, because there's about, I don't know, there's probably 15 different articles that I've written about cybersecurity in healthcare that are uh, up on the Forbes uh, website. And then I've also written a chapter, there's a chapter in the book on cybersecurity and healthcare, in part because the intersect between cybersecurity, technology, privacy, and trust are intertwined in healthcare in a very dramatic way. And so I find that to be um, a really interesting intersect that I've tried to add additional focus around. And yes, the Equifax breach uh -huh. is, um, is front and center to today's news cycle. But the issue is much broader than that, especially as it relates to healthcare, because I think the last estimate that I saw coming out of Black Hat in, La in Las Vegas this, this year was a statistic that hit me kind of between the eyes. There are apparently about a million open wrecks globally in the cybersecurity industry. So the, the need for cybersecurity analysts, programmers, and, and data scientists is severe and uh, dramatic. And that shortage speaks volumes about what the road ahead looks like, especially for industries like healthcare. Yeah, it is fascinating to see the uptick. Um, I mean, cybersecurity across all industries, but just the the incredible need. You know, I feel like it, you know, ten years ago with um, with meaningful use, and they were doing the the, the regional education centers and all that to sort of uh, increase capacity of of healthcare specific um, you know workforce workforce members. Uh, and now we're seeing it even more, uh, even more of a demand around, you know, like you said, data scientists for big data, but certainly uh, cybersecurity, DevOps security, cloud security, all of those different pieces. And there's really just not enough talent to go around. And I imagine Equifax has probably got some open racks right now as well. <laughs> yeah, even at the executive level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, and a um, you know, that, that was the other sort of news cycle that w wasn't a surprise, but it looks like the, both the CIO and, uh, the mm -hmm. CISO, uh, resigned, uh, this week, uh, basically immediately. Jeez. Yeah, no, it's kind of crazy. And, uh, yeah. And then there's all sorts of the, the lawsuits around insider trading and everything else. It's, it's pretty nuts. Um, actually, you know, sticking with the, the, the <laughs> Equifax, um, you know, breaches, uh, I guess, or, or, you know, significant breach, and then some other things that have come out over the last month or few weeks since that news news was made. Um, you know, in, in, on the, in the world of finance, there's the use of social security numbers. In the world of healthcare, there's uh, patient identifiers, and there's long been a debate about, uh, you know, sort of a universal uh, patient identifier. Um, I'm curious, and, and you know, we've never been able to agree to do it for a multitude of reasons, but I'm curious if you think we'll ever break through uh, the loss of patient privacy fear and actually have a universal patient identifier. Yeah, I think we will. I think it's inevitable, and here's why. Right now, uh, the consumer fear 
of a national patient identifier is very real. And I do understand it, but it's also tied to a fair amount of ignorance. And we're kind of reaching a tipping, a tipping point, maybe Equifax is that tipping point, where the risk of continuing to use social security numbers is actually far greater than if we had a new national patient identifier. And you got to realize that social security numbers were developed with almost no intelligence as a really dumb nine-digit numbering scheme in the 1930s. And so technology today has advanced to where we have much better techniques for generating safe and secure numbers strictly for patient identification. And yeah, there's no system that's perfectly safe, but we can do a lot better than social security numbers in the status quo. Other countries are already doing this today. In my, you know, in my own view, patient safety should always trump, uh, you know, consumer ignorance of this issue. But it often doesn't. Most consumers don't understand the risk at all because they don't have to access these systems. But about ten to fourteen percent of medical errors are the result of mismatched patient identification. We don't see it, but the Kaiser database has about 10,000 Maria Gonzalez's, and many of those have the uh, same birthday. We also wind up spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year cleaning up these data tsunamis that result with mismatched patient identification. So I think we're headed towards uh, an, an inevitability of patient identification, and I also think that it's going to need to be uh, probably a government mandate in much the same way that the government mandates um, things like vehicle identification numbers, the government mandated um, AC outlets, the government mandates uh, train track gauges for these very reasons, because there's a safety component to each of those. And that's the same thing we're going to come across with healthcare. Yeah, it's actually really interesting to to think about what you, you know, a few things that you just said in that regard. Uh, and one of the one of the things I want to restate because I'd never thought of it this way, but you know, you spoke about the tipping point and and the Equifax hack maybe potentially being it. Um, but you know what what you said in there was really interesting in that you know I I think what you're getting at is that social security numbers at this point aren't secure anymore. We we've, we've shown that they've been exposed you know, any number of times are used in all sorts of different uh, environments now, not just financial for identifying people. And so that there's the, the thought that social security numbers are somehow secure or more secure than a patient identifier is just not, it's just not true anymore. Is that, is that effectively what you're saying? Exactly what I'm saying. And what I'm saying is that we need to educate uh, consumers and patients on the idea that a new number is actually far better and in their best interest in terms of safety. Yeah, that's fascinating to think about. Um, I guess I, yeah, no, sorry. I, I just never thought of it that way before, but you're exactly right. I, I don't feel like my social security number is in any way secure at this point. There was an event that I attended that was a cybersecurity event. Uh, it was about two years ago. And the presenter was a, a top, you know, cybersecurity analyst, and he had his laptop open and connected to the web. And he asked the audience, and it was a pretty large audience, and he asked the audience for a volunteer. 
you know, and he just picked a guy at random, totally at random. And he said, so what's your name? And he typed it into his computer and he said, what's your address? And the guy gave him his address and he said, come on up here on stage. And he, and he pointed to his screen, uh, to the, to the, you know, the random, uh, attendee. And he said, is that your social security number? And the guy said, yeah. <laughs> so the, the idea that, you know, social security numbers are secure or that, or that they're usable is, is really a bad, um, is really a bad idea. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great conference trick um, or party trick, I guess. Um, <laughs> but it, but it certainly uh, underscores the point that they, the social security numbers aren't very secure. Um, is, is sticking with that and, and some of the things you were mentioning around patient matching, um, you know, obviously patient matching is a huge, is a huge problem. And you mentioned, you know, the number of, uh, entries for, for an individual patient within just Kaiser's database or Kaiser's multiple Epic databases. Um, do you, if a patient matching certainly across systems, across, um, you know, systems acquire new systems and new hospitals, um, it's, it, it, it's, it's becoming more and more important to be able to match patients, but as, you know, healthcare shifts. And as uh, we we look at sort of more full spectrum care and care across different entities and organizations, uh, I imagine that challenge of patient matching is also, Very become, you know, acute. beyond the social security fact, piece, is also becoming I that much more of an acute problem. Are that within a hospital system, patient matching um, using algorithms and other current techniques can really get um, accuracy to a pretty high level in the, in the 90s, mid to high 90s. The problem uh, occurs pretty rapidly when you when you try and share that data outside of the hospital, and in those cases where data is being shared outside of the hospital, patient matching accuracy drops into the low fifties to sixty percent. That's a pretty scary number exactly <laughs> and makes it exactly. almost impossible to rely on the data if you're a physician or, or any sort of provider by the fact that what we have in the way of these data repositories are basically very large competing commercial interests and i've never seen an enterprise solution where competing commercial interests agree on a standard uh, where where it's often referenced is that the banking and financial sector agreed pretty quickly, gravitated towards standards around ATMs. Mm -hmm. But that was interesting in part because that became a technology whereby if you didn't have ATMs, you lost customers. And that's not the case that we have in healthcare. We don't have the case of actually losing customers for lack of interoperability. In fact, the competing commercial interests are using the lack of interoperability to keep patients locked into their system. So the reverse is actually true in a technical sense for healthcare when we compare it to other sectors like financial services. And yeah, they're, you know, they're, yeah, you're, you're exactly right there. The incentives aren't there. Um, but it's interesting to do too, because, you know, in terms of patient matching and, and a universal patient identifier, um, I think that, you know, I'm in agreement if you're saying that, you know, kind of the industry itself, 
um, you know, the, the, the health systems and the EHRs aren't necessarily going to drive, um, drive that process forward. Uh, cause there's not much, <laughs> not much reason to, uh, but you're saying that, you know, potentially with consumer education and a mandate, like you made the comparison to AC, um, plugs is something that's, that's going to be essentially needed to drive the industry to, to, to have a universal patient identifier where we can actually start effectively passing data and matching patients across systems. Absolutely. And in fact, the interesting history to it is that a national patient identifier was actually baked into the first iteration <laughs> of HIPAA, which is portability. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so there were two components of HIPAA that are often forgotten. The first is that um, it was designed to create a national provider identifier, and it was also uh, tasked to create a national patient identifier. We kept the provider identifier, and in fact, that's still in use today. So we have a Mm -hmm. national uh, provider identifier, but for political and financial reasons, it was deemed to be too sensitive to create a national patient identifier. And so they punted on funding that. And I think we'll get to a point where we have to revisit and go back on funding that and have the federal government step in and help bridge that in a way that that doesn't necessarily dictate a standard, but in effect forces the industry to adhere to something that works for uh, the system overall and for all of us as patients. Yeah. And then maybe we'll deliver on that P uh, in HIPAA, right? Right. right. The portability part. Yes. Shifting gears a little bit. Uh, you, you know, you've talked about universal coverage and the confusion between universal coverage, uh, and universal healthcare or Medicare for all, uh, single payer, all these terms that tend to get thrown around at, uh, you know, election cycle time. Um, I was curious if you could give sort of a brief on how universal coverage is not the same as universal healthcare. Yeah, so uh, in fact, I wrote this piece, um, and it is up on Forbes. The headline, which you can look at, is um, single payer isn't necessary, but single pricing is. And the article goes into some pretty good detail around the distinction there. And the distinction really is universal coverage. We tend to lump the phrase in with Medicare for all and single payer and universal health care. And the reality is that it is distinctly separate. Universal coverage is the right term and is the term that is identified by the World Health Organization. Their definition is pretty good, which is basically that all people have access to preventative, curative, and rehabilitative health services of sufficient quality to be effective, while also ensuring that people do not suffer financial hardship when paying for these services. That's it in a nutshell. Now, how you pay for that is what the debate ahead is focused on. But my view is simply that universal coverage is the right model that every other industrialized country has already implemented and that we need to implement because it gets us to effectively single pricing. Can you speak to what's so important about single pricing? Why, why, why does that matter? Whether you're, I mean, for anybody in healthcare, and it does matter to pretty much everybody. 
it, it begs the question, which is, okay, since we don't have universal coverage, we don't have, we don't have uh, single pricing. And if we don't have single pricing, what do we have? What we have is a system of tiered coverage. And if you think about it, uh, the tiering starts with age. We tier by age twice, age 26 and 65. We also tier by employment, employer-sponsored insurance. We tier by military service, which is the VA. We tier by heritage, which is the Indian Health Services. We tier by income, which is Medicaid. So we have all these tiers of coverage. And even after all those tiers, we still wind up with about 10% of the American population that are considered uninsured. So we have seven, I don't know, eight tiers and then some smaller tiers on top of those. And you have to ask yourself, okay, so why do we do this tiering? And the only reason we do tiering in the, in the sense of coverage, is to support tiered pricing. And it's the tiered pricing that is really at the heart of a system that's been optimized for revenue and profits, not safety and quality. And we see this in other industries all over the place, right? So I don't know if you've ever shopped for a mattress, but I guarantee you if you go to Macy's, the name of the mattress, even though it's CERTA, the <laughs> model number is going to be vastly different than the model that you find at the mattress wholesaler in the strip mall. Mm -hmm. We find the same with um, airplane or, or you know airline seats. The price that you pay, even on Southwest, for any trip. Um, is is likely to be different than the passenger sitting, you know, right next to you, based entirely on when you purchase that ticket and the value of the route that um, that you're traveling. The same applies for hotels. We have tiered pricing for hotels, depending on you know, you can get a room in Las Vegas in the middle of summer when there's no conferences in town for you know fifty to seventy five dollars. <laughs> now you try and get it, you know, you try and get the same room at CES in Las Vegas in January, and I guarantee you that room is probably eight hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. So we have tiered pricing in kind of every industry, and the assumption has always been that that's the way it should work, and that's the way that it can work in healthcare, and it really can't. And that's been part of the problem is getting to a system that takes away those tiers only because they support tiered pricing. Yeah, you're, the first example there is interesting to, to, you know, take a step further, the mattress example, and that you have newer companies, you know, you have these new companies like Casper and others that are just selling mattresses directly to consumers online now, and have figured out a way <laughs> to package and ship that, <laughs> that, that product. Right. Uh, right. and, and guarantee a level of service and quality and returns. And, you know, you wonder <laughs> how that play and, and it's, you know, it's been something that, it, you know, not everybody shops that way yet, but you're starting to see more and more people, you know, change their mindset yeah. about buying mattresses. And you can see the same thing happening, I imagine, in healthcare. Absolutely. And the same thing happens in um, even newer technologies or newer services built around technology. Think of Uber. You mm -hmm. know, Uber has surge pricing. 
<laughs> and so there's there's ways that that every industry gravitates towards the idea of maximizing revenue and profits. And the only way you can do that is through tiered pricing. Mm-hmm. And so we've applied that to healthcare, And that's how we get to a situation in which this country will spend this year almost $11,000 per capita just on healthcare. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. Uh, and scary at the same time. Um, it would certainly be interesting to see a stand like like in an Uber model, a standard price, and then you can actually see when surge is happening, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and what the surge pricing is, and whether you actually want to take a ride uh, at that point. Uh, you know, at that point in time. <laughs> right. Right. Well, when we get to driverless cars, and that's the other piece that I'm kind of working on in the background is. Um, artificial intelligence coming to healthcare. Mm-hmm. And that'll be in the November publication of a magazine called Techonomy. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I see more and more. I mean, AI is obviously everywhere in the news, but certainly see more and my, more AI bots scheduling my meetings now with people. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, but it's here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do imagine, though, with AI, obviously, and, and even to do sophisticated search pricing like Uber, you know, there's a dependence on the data itself, right? Um, and in healthcare, yes. it's, it's, you know, you, you have to start solving that data problem and you can't have match rates of 50 or 60%, like you said, and all the other stuff around, you know, challenges with interoperability. Um, you're going to need that data to feed, to, to make those AI-based services effective, right? Right. Absolutely. I like the example of the difference between QuickBooks and Oracle Financials when you explain the difference, you know, going from like a small ambulatory practice versus some large acute tertiary care uh, hospital or, or, you know, health center. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about the difference there and the, the, the comparison to QuickBooks and Oracle so that, you know, they understand the challenges facing the industry and the sort of vast differences between these practice settings. Absolutely, because it is the difference between sort of the enterprise software model versus the small business model of software developing, marketing, and sales. And and the Oracle Financials and QuickBook model is mirrored very directly in healthcare with the electronic health record. We We tend to think of the electronic health record software industry as kind of this one monolithic industry in which Epic is at the top. And it's like, yes, Epic is in the top, but they happen to be in the top of both categories of ambulatory and in-hospital settings. But those are vastly different in the sense of how they build the software, how they market the software, and how they sell it. Because a small practice doesn't have anywhere near the capacity to support an enterprise software installation. And so a small practice is apt to use some cloud service that works great for them in generating what amounts to a healthcare bill. And that's really where um, all of the electronic health record software started. These are really just big billing engines. And we've tried to overlay clinical data into these billing engines with some degree of success, but where it's been lacking is in sharing that, being able to share that clinical data with, um, with other entities. That's still, that goes back to the interoperability issue. 
but yes, it's the it's the it's the software model that's different when you're building software for a big enterprise or if you're building it for the smaller solo practice. I'm curious. You also talked about EHRs, uh, you know, and, and some of the purpose around, you know, documentation for 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 billing, uh, and then sort of layering in additional clinical uh, clinical data. Um, but I, I'm curious where you see that going, you know, in the future in terms of EHRs versus, uh, you know, I guess the big example would be like, a, a, you know, a CRM or you know, a few years ago, maybe five, six, maybe I'm dating it here, five, six, seven, eight years ago, where everybody talked about patient relationship management. Um, and, and companies like Salesforce, um, I guess I'm curious where you see that clinical data, uh, repository, uh, or, or, you know, um, for lack of a better way, sort of technology trend going, uh, cause it, at one point you have sort of the historical legacy EHR at the other point, you have sort of the patient relationship, customer relationship management systems. And I'm curious where, how you see those, um, sort of playing together. Yeah. So in much the same way that Salesforce is a good example here, um, large organizations often use Salesforce very directly, and it's a huge commitment. But that doesn't mean their customers use it at all. In fact, their customers may not see it at all. And there's elements of that that intersect with healthcare as well. But we will get to a point where Patients, and we're already starting to see elements of that where patients are being included in the data uh, in the data process. What we're not prepared for yet is some of the new risk that that represents when patients are the intermediaries. Because if a provider, let's say provider A, includes a patient portal, I as a patient have access to that patient portal. I capture my data and then in a way share that data with provider B, provider B needs some degree of certainty that I, as the patient, haven't inadvertently manipulated the data in a way that could change uh, his risk profile in assuming liability for that data. So lots of issues around liability and risk management when it comes to health data that um, are still being sorted out. And, and so there's a desire, certainly, to give patients access to their data. And certainly some patients want more participation in the data process, but we still have to work through elements of the risk associated to that data on whose part. Who do you think is driving that desire to provide patients access to more data? Where do you, is it is it you know largely consumer driven? Is it largely consumer and in, in, in that bucket sort of consumer advocate? Uh, is it providers? Is it is it um, I mean payers? If you're just enlisting off people, but I'm just curious where you see the major drivers for that. I guess today and then going forward for patient access to data. So there's a big advocacy group of patients that are. Um, you know, clearly at the forefront of insisting on being included in the in the data process. And so there's a core group there, and they're helping to push the industry into, into allowing that to happen. I think it was last week or maybe even the week before that Epic had a sizable announcement relative to new capabilities of being able to share 
their my patient portal data with a broader range of entities. So it, the industry is moving in that direction. I think it's a function of sort of everybody being comfortable with elements of the risk associated with that. And it, the risk profile changes dramatically for all of us as patients, depending on where we are sort of in the clinical process. If we have a chronic condition, if we have a life-threatening condition, our interest and our motivations around access and controlling that data are vastly different than if we don't have those kinds of conditions. And so there's an important bridge, or there's an important scale there relative to understanding those needs and motivations uh, on the part of different constituents. You've certainly seen some of the products like Epic, you know, recently kind of follow suit. Um, and and <laughs> even Judy get into a little bit of uh, at at Epic a little bit of hot water recently in talking about you know how patients or the types of data patients should be able to access. Right. She, yeah, she got <laughs> she wasn't ready for Joe Biden. <laughs> uh, I've met Judy and uh, I like her a lot. She has um, she she has a lot of. Uh, well, she's she's an interesting character in her own right, but she has a lot of interest uh, at heart relative to the industry at large. And you have to realize she's been doing this for a very long time relative to Epic. Mm-hmm. And she was among the first. She was certainly among the first who recognized the value that digital data would have within a healthcare setting. And so uh, she's been well rewarded. But Epic itself, you know, Epic itself is a privately held company. And the fact is, there's actually only three of those of that size that are left uh, kind of in the U.S. Epic is one of them. The other is SAS, which is based in Cary, North Carolina, mm-hmm. which is uh, Dr. Dr. Goodnight. And it's a company based entirely on analytics. And then uh, the other one that a lot of people aren't aware of is a company out of Redlands, California called Esri. And Esri is in the global information systems management software space, GIS, Mm -hmm. which is what we recognize with Google Maps. They were the Google Maps before there was a Google Maps. And they sell their software and services literally to countries around the world, mostly at the government and federal level. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting to hear about the other two. Uh, and then Epic sells its electronic health record system now to, or is trying to, to entire countries. <laughs> right. And the irony, not the irony, but the intersect there is really interesting because all three of those companies, Esri, SAS, mm-hmm. and Epic, all got their start around the same time. And they elected, by virtue of their success, they elected to remain private. And uh, each one of those privately held companies, the founder and owners, are literally billionaires. I did want to give you the time to tell listeners where they can pick up a copy of your book, um, what your website is, how they can interact with you on Twitter or other social media. Absolutely. So I do have an author's website where the book is highlighted. And then there's also more recent content that I also publish up there periodically. And the web address is just dan-monroe.com. 
So dan-munro.com. And the, my Twitter handle is easy, which is just at Dan Monroe. And the Monroe is the original Scottish spelling, M-U-N-R-O. <laughs> my, my direct message is open on Twitter. And then uh, in terms of events, I'll actually be at the Techonomy event in November in uh, Half Moon Bay in San Francisco. Okay, fantastic. Well, uh, you know, if, if anything, this this <laughs> this conversation has been um, sort of fascinating and enlightening. And, you know, anybody listening to it, I'm, I'm sure um, <laughs> sees value in buying your book um, and uh, following you on Twitter at this point, because it, it really has been incredibly insightful. The last thing I would say is that um, the book was released in 2016, but the fact is that there's nothing about it that has really changed as a result of the election or really um, uh, the road ahead. Hey, out of curiosity, when did you start writing the book or, or working? Uh, yeah, whether writing or working on the idea for the book? Yeah, so it, it's kind of a, a backwards process in some ways as a writer. So I started writing about healthcare in 2011, and I wound up doing a lot of writing for Forbes as a contributor for about five years. And it was in the course of those five years that I realized after all of that sort of research that there was a lot of this that could and should be condensed, I thought, into a book form. And so in effect, it was a five-year process and then uh, basically about a six-month process for actually getting the book out. That's faster than I would have thought, actually. Uh, but I guess since you kind of worked, you know, we're working towards it uh, with some of the articles. Most of, yeah, most of book writing at, at this level for a business book, most of it is research. And so I had already done a lot of that relative to the five years. And of course, what I was seeing was, and that's part of what started me writing the book, was some of the articles I was starting to write were actually the same issue, the same topic, uh, repeating itself. And it's like, okay, I, I, I don't want to, <laughs> I'm tired of that. So let's do something else. And that's part of what helped uh, motivate me into the book. Where do you go to sort of stay up on uh, healthcare news, healthcare technology news? There's tons of sites. And the, the fact is that I, um, you know, I use an RSS feed mm -hmm. that, um, that sort of, that captures a lot of the different sites that I look at. I tend to just uh, scroll through the headlines. And there's, uh, at this stage, a lot of it winds up being around the policy side. Mm. And so a lot of it is politically um, relevant and may not be of, of a lot of interest to consumers in the sense of the nitty gritty of legislative process. I see. I see. Well, uh, again, we, we really greatly appreciate your time. This has been an awesome interview. Um, and, you know, best of luck to you. And I encourage anybody uh, listening to, to check out Dan's book, check him out on Twitter. Um, and I guess at the uh, Techonomy Conference uh, in Half Moon Bay. Perfect. Hey, thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Healthcare Innovators Podcast. Subscribe today at datica.com. Datica.com.